Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. And today's guest is Judge Alex. Hello. Hi. How are you, Rena? I am good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I want to show you something. Go ahead. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I worked on your show from 2005 to like, oh my gosh, I think maybe like 2007. I worked on season five through nine. Okay. So I was there till the end. So you were there for the last year in Houston and then the rest of the LA years. Yeah, there's totally a story there too. I am curious who that picture is behind you. That's George Foreman. His daughter, Georgetta, was a producer on Judge Alex. I told her I was a fan of her dad's and he sent me this sign, this autographed picture that says to Judge Alex, my hero from George Foreman. So there you go. Oh my God. And that's so funny because I started the episode and I held up a picture of you. Right. Hold on. We can get it. It's so yeah. crazy with the green screen and it says, Rena, great cases, great year. And that was, I believe in 2009 when I got that on the last season of your show. I should have uh, dated it for you. Oh, how cool go. though to get like little mementos like that right right yeah yeah it is nice it is nice i that's why i never minded sending autographed pictures to fans because i enjoy getting them uh, myself from people i admire and so i would sometimes have to sign hundreds of those things <laughs> it was a little tiring but it's worth it oh that's really sweet yeah jerry springer totally did that too when i worked for him yeah it's a nice little perk that's great how long did you work for jerry springer yeah so that was my first job out of college i I started there in 2001, pre 9-11 and worked there till 2003. And what's super crazy is I think like right when I'm not exactly sure at what stage your show was in, in Houston, but I had been a post-production supervisor on a couple shows in LA. And then I think through the producers guild of America, I applied for a post-production supervisor on your show. And they flew me from LA to Houston. And then I was up against somebody who had way more experience. And let me just tell you this, this is so crazy. This was like when they would give you a tape and they would give you a remote and they would tell you to string out how you would edit a segment. It's like the test. Right. Will you make a good post-production supervisor? And my role on those other shows wasn't so much of the editing. So they put me up in this really nice suite. And I was like, oh my God, I totally want to move to Houston. I can get like a much bigger place. I went and saw like an apartment, like, you know, the day before. Then I sat with the tape and I had never cut together like a court TV show. I had worked in talk and I had worked on, you know, some MTV shows and been like a field interviewer, but I had never strung out a segment. I was like, I'm, I'm screwed. I was like, (laughs) you know, I was like, I gave it my best, but I was like, I'm totally not getting this. So I like went out to dinner with my aunt (laughs) anyways, you know, saw the family and I literally was up the whole night trying my darndest to like string out a segment for your show. But like, yeah, I didn't get the job. It's hard, it's hard work. It's, you know, people think, well, you know, people at home, they watch a show and they go, oh, it's Jerry Springer, what a great show he has. And, or Judge Alex, he does such a great job on the show. They don't realize the hundred people behind the show that make it a good show. One guy is the guy in front of the camera or two, you know, me and my bailiff, but you know, the stringers who find the cases, the producers who evaluate and talk to them, the assistant producers who evaluate and talk to them, the producers who set out what the, what the story is, the editors who cut down gobs of content 
and turn it into a 30 minute episode or a 15 minute episode, whatever it was. They don't realize that there's, there's the cameramen, the cameramen and camera women, the camera people, the executive producer, that everybody, the makeup people, you know, I mean, everybody who goes in front of the camera has to have makeup on or else they look like a sheet of paper. So, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the plaintiff or the defendant or the witness or the judge or the ba- everybody's. There's a lot of people working on those shows. I heard and, you say too that you even had like a dentist <clears throat> because one of your guests was missing well, not one teeth. of our guests not one of our guests a lot of our guests you know they just their teeth were jacked up and you know i mean some people don't take care of their teeth some people have bad conditions that make their teeth get all wrecked some people are you're probably smoking meth in our parking lot before they come in it just doesn't look very good to have somebody you know on your tv screen talking about a case with really jacked up teeth so we actually had a dentist on staff who would fix their teeth, but I think at least temporarily, it wasn't like they were getting a full dental workup. It would just make them appear not better on television. So they weren't like looking at their episode later and going, oh my God, (laughs) that's what my teeth look like. So we actually had a dentist on staff who would fix stuff. Oh my God. You know, hearing you talk about the behind the scenes of the show was actually so similar to what I experienced working at Jerry Springer. Oh, really? I would think our show was a little different than Jerry Springer, but but the behind the scenes is probably very similar. I heard you say something like you were herding cats and like you just mentioned now that, you know, they may have done meth beforehand, like that some of the stories happen in the street and then you have to, you know, figure out whether they can still do the show or whether Mm -hmm. the show is going to even unfold the way that you expected to unfold on stage. So many problems with doing a court show. I mean, people don't realize that we were doing real cases. You know, we we weren't making up cases, although some of the court shows on television now make up cases. They're totally scripted. And I think the audience, they smell that a mile away and they know it's phony and they don't like phony, but ours were all real cases. We just had people like you, who we call stringers, who would go through court files all over the country looking for cases that would be of interest. And, you know, I guess you could probably tell us better than anyone, but I assume those were usually cases where there's some kind of relationship, a family, a friend, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor. You don't sue those people the first time they jerk you around. It's usually the straw that broke the camel's back. And you get the benefit of that backstory of, yeah, and this is what he did to me before. And I still trusted him. And, you know, and, and people are at home are going, yep, that's my brother-in-law or whatever. So they can relate. But we have stringers like you all over the country looking through court files, finding those. And then we have to have have, you know, producers, assistant producers contact those people and try to see if they'd be interested in having me decide their case because my decision is legally binding. I should say was, you know, the show's not on the air anymore, but my decision was legally binding. It was actually more binding than the rulings I made as a circuit court judge in Miami because it's arbitration. So there's no appeal. You basically, what I say goes, you know, at least as a judge in Miami, they could appeal me and the appellate court, you know, could affirm or, or reverse me. But in the judge shows, all of them, whether it's Judge Judy, People's Court, Judge Alex, they're all binding arbitration, private judging, and, you know, it's final. So there's a lot that goes into making that 30 minutes of television. Yeah, it was really crazy. So after I lived and worked in LA, I met my husband when I was working on like third season of Nanny 911. Mm -hmm. And I ended up moving to the Bay Area, got married, had three kids in four years. And then while my kids were in preschool, I kind of like wanted to inch my way back into working. And I looked on Craigslist in the (laughs) film section and I saw that Judge Alex was looking for stringers. I'm like, no freaking way. I'm like, I applied Mm -hmm. for that like years ago and wanted to work on that show. And then I saw that it had moved from Houston to LA and I knew someone on the show. So I ended up getting hired as a stringer. I was actually really good at being a stringer and I'm going to give up some secrets here, but like the head of your research department was really smart. She was like, look, there's going to be other shows there. You need to find out when they're there and you need to beat them there and you need to get in with the clerks so Mm -hmm. much so that like, you know, when to go to court. So like I had all the court clerks, like cell phone numbers. I'm like, if I'm driving an hour and a half to a courthouse, there better be a stash, right? Like and I, I had them like trained and I worked on the show for so long that like I knew them by name. 
That's so funny. Is people people don't know that other court shows steal your your case. We had a case, and this person was going to do our show. And when we called them back, when the producer called them back to schedule their flights, they were like, "Oh, well, I booked to do Judge Judy." And we're like, "Why? You've already signed an agreement with us. We're preparing your flight and all stuff." Well, the producer from Judge Judy called and said, "Oh, you didn't hear? Judge Alex got canceled, and but we'll do your show." And so they just lie to people to get them to. You know, that's what the guy told us. They just lie to people to to get them to do their show. They steal shows from other shows and all that stuff happens behind the scenes. But then you, you know, you get the person and you, you know, you have to call through hundreds of files that the stringers have pulled that are all good potential cases to find the ones that are willing to be on television, the ones that can tell a story because some people just aren't very linear and, you know, they're going off on tangents in every direction. You can't get them to tell their story in any way that anybody could understand. You know, just all these different thresholds that you have to meet that knock people out to get down to, you know, out of maybe 300 cases, we'd end up with 28 or something like that for that week's filming, because I would film a whole bunch of cases in, in three days. And then you've got to make all the travel arrangements because I was trying cases from all over the country, like like you pointed out. So, you know, we're flying people in from North Carolina and from New York and from Illinois and from Kentucky and from everywhere. And you have to coordinate, you know, you have people coordinating all those flights and the connections for those flights and putting them up if they come the night before. And, and then you have the difficulty that you've got this plaintiff who hates the defendant. You can't have them both in the same hotel room because inev- invariably they run into each other and they get into a fight. And now you lost the case. We've had litigants from multiple cases is, you know, hot tubbing in a hotel room together and then getting in a fight and getting arrested. And then you lose multiple cases. A, a guy, I remember one guy who was flying across the country, had a layover in Chicago, got off the plane and got in a fight with a cop. Now he got arrested in Chicago, never made it to LA. All those things happen. It's just insane. That's why I said it's like herding cats. You're really reaching in every direction, trying to control and all of them are doing their own thing and moving in their own way away from you. And you know what the court is like too, because I heard you say then this was even like how you got your TV show was another TV show was filming in your courtroom, right? Right. Yes. Well, I mean, I think what, what happened was there was a pilot that was being shot for a show that I think was called Crime and Punishment. And they were, they wanted to use my courtroom and they were, and I said, as long as you can put some cameras that are not disruptive. And they said, no, we'll mount some on the walls, blah, blah, blah. We won't show any jurors faces and all this stuff. And we'll get permission from the lawyers. And, and so I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. So they, they did shoot some footage and, and they caught on the pilot, they caught some, a humorous exchange between me and a lawyer and, and his defendant in a murder trial that made it into their pilot. So years later, many years later, I was approached about a possible court show and they wanted to know if I had any footage and they had left me with this footage of me that they used in their sizzle, not pilot, but in their sizzle reel. And so I said, yeah, sure. And I sent them that. And so this network really wanted me to do the show. And if I flew over to LA and met with, to Burbank and met with them. And it was an appealing idea, but I had a career as a judge and in television, they really only will typically guarantee you one year. Rarely, if ever, do they guarantee you more than a year because they don't know how you're going to do. And so if you don't do well, they're stuck with you for a second year. And there's a lot of money that goes into producing these shows. So, you know, I I wasn't willing to give up my career for a a one-year gig that could be canceled after a year. And then I'm not on the bench as a judge and I don't have a TV show. And so I passed on it and they didn't do the show without me. And then a couple of years later, the producers who I had met on that trip were contacted by the syndication branch for Fox, which was, was called 20th Television. And they said they were looking to do a court show. And they said, well, we met a judge two years ago that we really liked, but you know, he wasn't ready to do the show. Maybe he's changed his mind. And by that time, I had been lamenting that I didn't try it because I always like to try new things. And so they happened to be on vacation in Thailand at the time. And they called me from Thailand and I happened to be stepping off the bench on a murder trial. And my judicial assistant just said, there's this woman calling you from Thailand. And she told me her name. Uh, Her name was Sharon Sussman. And uh, Wheeler Sussman was a production company. And, and I said, sure, I'll take it. And from that point on, we did Judge Alex. But it was, there, was, there was a lot to it from that point on, but we did. We did. Wow. Yeah, I really want to talk about too, like you were a cop 
at 19, which you were such a baby. Like you had to ask, you make a joke, but you had to ask your mom to buy the gun because you couldn't even buy one. I couldn't. You had to be 21 to buy a gun or bullets. So it's a kind of a funny quirk in the law. You can be a cop at any time after 18. Nobody sends you to the academy. No department does because, you know, you're 18 or 19. But I was able to convince the chief of my department. I'd been working there as a dispatcher and took a lot of convincing. I got to tell you, they they were not interested in sending me. Not to mention at 19, I had braces on my teeth. So I probably looked 16. I convinced them to send me. But at you know the academy, the trainers at the academy were like, no way, this kid's going to get devoured on the street. So they did everything they could to knock me out of the academy. They were in my face. They were like everything they could possibly do to get me to quit. But I didn't. And in fact, I I did so well that I ended up getting their highest award, which was the most outstanding recruit award. But then I'm on the street, I'm 19 years old, and they give you a gun, but you know, you have to buy an off-duty gun. And I couldn't buy an off-duty gun because I was 19. I had my mom buy my gun. You could do it legally back down. I don't know if you could do it legally now, I guess. I don't know. But I haven't looked at the firearms law. I know you can't buy guns for other people, but I'm not sure in the family. But my mother had to go with me to the gun shop to buy my off-duty weapon because I couldn't legally buy it. And then of course the difficulty is not that. I mean, that's small obstacle. The difficulty is you're arresting people who are 30, 40, 50 years old and you're 19. You know, that can lead to more confrontation because in their mind, they're like, I'm going to let this kid put me in a police car. So uh, luckily I was, I was good at defusing people, but if I had to use force and I had to use force, but I didn't, didn't usually. Yeah. Did you ever get pushed around? I've had to fight people. I was arresting sometimes. Like I still have a scar on my wrist here from some drunk that I was arresting for DUI. And I got one handcuff on him and he started to fight. So I had his arm behind his back in an arm bar, but my handcuff was resting on my wrist and he kept fighting and it just kept sawing into my wrist, the teeth of the handcuff. So yeah, I mean, there are times when you have to struggle with people, but uh, I was always pretty good at calming people down. You know, I was always pretty good at talking them down. I look at a lot of things on the news where cops end up having to use force and then they get criticized. And it's like every single time it's the person did not go along with what the officer said. And you can always fight the officer's arrest in court. But if an officer tells you you're under arrest, it's not like your resisting is going to lead him to go, oh, you don't want to go. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll just leave. And maybe tomorrow you'll want to go. You're going to get arrested. He's just going to have to escalate the amount of force he uses to arrest you. Or there'll be you know, 10 more people dressed like him who show up to make sure you go to jail. So all you're doing is creating a situation where you might get injured and probably will get injured when they take you down to the ground. So 90% of the events that happen that are criticized stem from a person who was told they're under arrest or told, show me your hands or told, don't make any moves. And they totally disregard it. And, you know, the cop doesn't know what your intention is. You know what your intention is, but the cop doesn't know. He has to assume or she has to assume that if you say, I'm going for my wallet and they go, don't, don't do that. Put your hand in front of you and you still reach back there. They have to assume you could be coming out with a gun because you could. A person who's going to reach for a gun in the back pocket is not say, I'm going to go for my gun. They say, I'm going for my wallet. So yeah, that's where a lot of mistaken shootings and things like that happen. So yeah, there are times as a cop that you have to use force, but you know, luckily I was, I was very good at talking people down and explaining things to them in ways that they would go like, all right, fine. And you complete the arrest. Yeah, I would think that is a good skill to have. Yeah. I did listen to another interview as well, where you said that your dad encouraged you to still continue your schooling alongside being a police officer. Right. Yeah. You know, again, I became a cop at 19 and I thought this is what I want to do my whole life. And, And I still miss it. I mean, to this day, I miss police work. I really enjoyed helping people. It was it was a very gratifying feeling. Sometimes it wasn't as gratifying as other times. I remember one time this this woman was broken down on the side of the road, and it was just a blazing hot day. And I'm in a blue uniform, the you know police uniform, and I've got a bulletproof vest, which is Kevlar. It's like this thick. And it just traps the heat in you. And yeah, I felt bad for her. So I pulled over and I said, you know, if I call AAA for her, or, uh, somebody to come change your tire, she'll be here for another hour and a half or two. So I said, hey, pop the trunk, I'll change your tire. So I changed her tire. I am just literally like, like that scene in Airplane where the guy's the pilot and the sweat's like running like a spigot down his face. That's how I am. Uh, it's it's 90 something, like 98 degrees in Miami, two o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm just baking inside this bulletproof vest and uniform. And I, after I finish, I'm just drenched in sweat. My hands are pitch black from the tire and all this stuff. And 
I just look at her and I thought she was just gonna say, thank you so much. And she goes, turns, gets in the car, cranks it up and drives away. Doesn't say a word. And I was like, that's the last time I'm doing that. <laughs> I had to go back to the station, clean up. It was just like a, just a, a mess. But most of the time, you get a lot of personal gratification out of being a police officer. You're generally trying to stop bad guys, unless you're a jerk. And there are some police officers who are jerks. I mean, just like there are TV personalities who are jerks, just like there are lawyers and doctors and teachers who are jerks. Unfortunately, with a police officer, you have a lot more power. You know, you have an incredible amount of power. So if you have a jerk who's a police officer, they can do an awful lot of damage. That's unfortunate. It also breeds a situation where, you know, police officers don't like to report other police officers. You know, if they know one of them is being a jerk, if they know one of them is too quick to use force or something like that, they hesitate to report them because when you get in trouble as a cop and somebody is, knocks you to the ground and is trying to fight for your gun and you're fighting for your life, when you yell on the radio for backup, in, in Miami, it's it, the code is a 315. The city lights up. There are police officers who are coming from 20 miles away. It doesn't matter that they are in a department that's 20 miles from you. When an officer yells for a 315, meaning they need emergency backup, everybody comes. And it's that kind of loyalty that I know that if somebody's trying to kill me, you who don't even know me are going to risk everything to get here and save my life. That makes police officers hesitant to say, hey, this guy's, you know, being a jerk. It's a a bad mix because then you get police officers who are the, the ones who should report bad officers who are hesitant to report bad officers because they're like, next time they may not come and save your life. Right. So, you know, that's an unfortunate situation, but your, your first question was about education. And my, you know, when I became 19, as I said, I wanted to be a cop and I thought I wanted to do it my whole life, but my, my father and my mother both, but my father primarily said, if that's what you want to do, fine, but don't give up on education because, you know, if you later on decide you want to do something different, you want to have options. And if you stopped studying because you thought this is what you want to do your whole life, you'll be limited to this. You'll be limited to what you can do with the education you have. And it made sense. I thought he's wrong. I want to do this my whole life, but it made sense. So I kept studying. And when I got my bachelor's degree, I thought I like law enforcement and I did very well in the law block in the academy. So I probably like law school. I like to tell people that that's a sum total of analysis that went into my <laughs> going to law school was basically, I like law enforcement. I probably like law. And I went to law school. By the time I graduated, it was difficult because I worked full-time while I went to law school full-time. So I would go to law school during the day and then at night, put on my uniform and patrol all night and then be back in class at eight in the morning the next day. So it was ridiculous. I mean, now that I think about it, of course, back then it was just, well, this is what I have to do. But I didn't have a day off for two years. I, I had no day off for two years because Friday and Saturday were my days off on the police force, but I had law school all day. And then Saturday and Sunday, I didn't have law school, but I was working as a cop all day. When I graduated and, and I actually had a job as a lawyer, I was the thing that amazed me the most was I got weekends off every week. It was like two days every week. What did you do with that time? I don't know. I don't remember. So it was it was difficult. But when I graduated law school, I was ready to try something different. And since I hadn't stopped studying, I had options. So I was able to become a, a lawyer and I became a litigator. It's interesting that I had a court reporter tell me once that of all the lawyers that she's worked with, the men hated being lawyers and the women loved being lawyers. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And I, it's true. I didn't get the personal gratification being a lawyer that I got from police work because I was always somebody's hired gun. Whether I agreed with my client or I didn't agree with my client, you know, we have an adversarial system. And the idea is this side fights for what they say happened and this side fights for what they say happened and the truth will come out in that fight. So you're fighting for your client, whether you agree with them or not, because that's the system we have. You know, that didn't really appeal to me that much. It was very lucrative. I did very well for my clients. And luckily I had really good clients clients who I felt good fighting for. But every once in a while, you had a case that you're like, I just can't believe I have to fight this fight. And that's what you have to do. So, but the, I think her comment about women liking the legal profession more than men, I think stemmed from the fact that at that time, there weren't very many women in the legal profession. And now there are, you know how it is. You can have a, a woman in a, a board meeting and very often she'll contribute an idea and it just goes over people's head. And then some guy in the meetings, you know, contributes the same idea. And people go, that's a good point. And, you know, the woman's going like, what the heck happened? I had the same idea. Nobody said anything when I said, when I had it. Right. But when she's a lawyer, everybody listens when she speaks. 
because she's the general counsel or she's the lawyer. And they, you know, so I think it was something that was very empowering to have be a woman in that position because people take you seriously when you're a lawyer, you know, you, you have information that they need. I think that might be why women really enjoyed the profession more than men did. But I know a lot of men who absolutely love being lawyers, love being litigators, but I also know many, many more who go, this is a difficult way to make a living. And it is, it's a grind. I'm interested how studying law school at the same time you were a cop influenced your policing activities. It didn't influence my policing activities, except that I got a better understanding than I had from the police academy on laws. You know, I got got a better grasp of it. Well, I guess that's not true. It does influence your policing activities. and, And so did, you know, becoming a judge. I think that every addition of education opens your eyes more. You know, when you're a police officer, you see the person, you get beat somebody up or God forbid, rape somebody or killed somebody or did some horrible thing, which is kind of what leads to a lot of police burnout. Nobody calls the police because they're having a birthday party and they're like, hey, can you send some officers over to party with us? <laughs> You're getting called over because at the birth- birthday party, the aunt shot the niece or some stupid thing like that. So you're always dealing with bad, hard situations that tends to harden you. I remember there was this case in here in Miami. It was a a well-to-do neighborhood in Miami that had a serial rapist. And this kid was 17 years old, but he was a violent, violent rapist. Everybody was looking for him. And one of the officers finally caught him and chased him down in the yard of some wealthy woman who I guess had no life experience at all. But she comes out and sees the officer handcuffing this 17 year old kid and goes, get off of him. Leave him alone. You're just abusing that kid. And he didn't do nothing. And I remember the officer telling me, you know, I really felt like unhandcuffing him and saying, well, why don't you take him in then? You know, but of course, he's not going to do that. But he's just so outraged that you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what he did. You don't know what we've seen him do. And so police tend to congregate with other police because, you know, they can relate. They've all seen the same horrors. They've all had to deal with it. And it becomes a a cycle because if all your friends are cops, your attitude just narrows and you start to see things just 24-7 from a police perspective. You know, I've seen that happen. And so as I, you know, became a lawyer and started expanding my knowledge base, you know, I left the, the area of police work where you think, Oh, I arrested this guy and now some lawyer got him off and the, the court set him free and now he's back out here again. And now, you know, you know, when I became a judge, that opened my knowledge base a little more. And, you know, you start to understand how the system works. And I know, you know, it's very trite to say, oh, the system doesn't work. The system's broken. I, I think for the last, not, not the last two years, but before that, for three years in a row, all you heard was this is, bro- or in, you know, our criminal justice system is broken. Our immigration system is broken. Our educational system is broken. It seemed to be like the catchphrase of, of the decade. I mean, the criminal justice system is not broken. It, it's not perfect. It's certainly not perfect. It can always be improved, but it's never going to be perfect because it's a human system. And as long as you have humans involved, there's going to be imperfections. But the way the system works is we need criminal defense lawyers. As a cop, I really didn't have a lot of affection for criminal defense lawyers because I viewed them as, oh, they're the ones that get the guy off that I arrested who committed this crime. But, you know, the way our system works, you know, the prosecutors have to convince a jury beyond every reasonable doubt that this defendant committed this crime. And it's the defense attorney's job to challenge the evidence that's presented by the prosecution. Because if they don't rise to the level of beyond every reasonable doubt, then he shouldn't be convicted because that high standard is set so that innocent people don't get convicted. There are a lot of bad circumstances that could lead to an innocent person getting convicted. Coincidences, you know, people who look like other people and things like that. So we set the the bar very high and the prosecution, the state attorneys accept that, the district attorney, they accept what their threshold is and they try to get their proof to that level in the eyes of the jury. And it's the defense attorney's job to challenge that evidence. What if this person's lying? What if this person has an agenda? What if they didn't see them very well? And if the jury disagrees and goes, no, I don't think he's lying. And I don't think he he's uh, got an agenda. I thought he I think he confident in the description or the identification or whatever. Then the state met its burden and the guy's guilty. And most good defense attorneys go, that's the way it is. I did my job. I challenged the evidence. The jury found that he was guilty and case over. The system worked. If the jury decides that no, uh, they don't, they have a reasonable doubt for whatever reason, then he shouldn't get convicted because that's that safety net that prevents an innocent person from getting convicted. And it's it's the defense attorney's job to poke that 
evidence and say, well, you know, is there a hole here? Is there a hole here? To make sure that it rises to the level of beyond every reasonable doubt. But as a cop, I didn't see it that way. As a cop, I saw it as this is the guy who gets the guy off that I arrested. And now that guy might go out and do another crime. And to an extent, you're right, he might. But that's why we have a system that's better than a system in Venezuela or some other country. Because, you know, as much as people like to criticize the U.S., I've yet to see anybody come forward and say, but the system over here is so much better because it's not. I mean, I, you know, I knew a Secret Service agent, a very close friend of mine who was a, was a Secret Service agent, and he went to Venezuela because he would do, you know, investigations in Latin America, and he'd also do advances for when the president went down there and things like that. But he had to go speak to somebody who was in prison, in jail, in jail, awaiting trial in Venezuela. And, you know, what he described was just nothing Americans would ever envision. He said he walked in there. He said, first of all, there are people there who've been waiting for their trial for years. They haven't had a trial yet. They just got arrested. And they've been waiting in jail for years, waiting for their trial. The people are on top of each other. There's nowhere to sit. There's not enough room for all of them. They're sitting on all the stairs. You, like if you're walking up a stairway, there's nowhere to step because every step has people sitting on it. And he's describing this to me. And he says, the guard that escorted him is walking up the stairs to go take him to to see this individual and some guy in the in the jail there or the prison where it was a jail i guess won't move out of the way you know the guard is basically stepping in the middle and people are leaning to the side you know to make room for the guard to walk through and for him behind them and this guard had a, a set of leg irons in his hand you know like steel leg irons and this guy won't move out of his way and the guard looks at him and says move and the guy just looks at him and doesn't move out of the way and he said the, the guard swung the leg iron and just split the guy's head open and he said his, his, his body just tumbled down the stairs and he thought i mean these guys are just going to kill this guard and me no they just what continued on and my friend who's you know secret service agent for many years was like how does that happen but he's just cracked this guy's head open and nothing happens to him here or in any legal channel and when he got out and he mentioned it to somebody there they said none of the inmates would ever think of laying a hand on a guard because they would just line them up and shoot them all i'm going like they don't realize what a good justice system we have <laughs> compared to other other countries. But yeah, it, it, of course, it can always be improved. And, you know, I think that's that's always an ongoing thing. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, right? So, Have you visited the prisons at all? The prisons? I visited the federal prison here in Miami as a lawyer. Because as a lawyer, I represented one of my clients was the state of Florida. And so I would represent the Department of Corrections, the Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles, the Department of Transportation in litigation. And I had one case against the Department of Corrections where an inmate was suing the Department of Corrections. Actually, I think I had two. I had two cases. And so I had to go down to the federal prison here in Miami. And it's kind of sobering when you walk in there because the chances of somebody in there knowing I'm an ex-cop is not very high because it's a federal prison and I wasn't a federal officer. But, you know, people I arrested later on might get arrested for a federal crime and be there. And you don't really want to be an ex-cop in the prison yard. So I'm walking along the prison yard, you know, I'm looking at all these people who are hanging out. And I know that they bury shanks, you know, they, they find pieces of metal and they sharpen it and they bury it in the sand and in the grass so they know where it is next to a pipe or something. And so at any given time, any of them can pull out a weapon and kill somebody. And if you've got somebody there who's doing life, really, they don't have a heck of a lot to lose. So it is kind of a sobering experience to walk through the prison yard unarmed, you know, which of course you have to be when you've been a, a police officer before. But that's the only time I think I've visited a prison. Visited the Dade County Jail a few times, of course, because, you know, I was a judge in Miami-Dade County and it was attached to the courthouse. And there were times when I needed to go in there for something. Other than that, I don't think I've been to any other prison. Whoa. Yeah. It's funny because back to when I was a stringer and yeah. going to the courthouses, and this is just even funny in itself, but like I went there pregnant with my third kid. I had mm -hmm. to go through the metal detectors. One time somebody, two people in front of me got pepper sprayed. Oh, nice. Jeez. It was so crazy. Like that literally takes your breath away. You know, we had people walking through metal detectors at our show as well. I mean, it wasn't a courthouse. It was a courtroom that was a set, but our litigants are, some of them are just crazy. So we had them go through metal detectors and we would tell people, you know, we're going to go through your purse. Don't bring drugs because if you do, 
we're going to have to turn it over to the police officer on the set and you're going to have a problem. Don't bring weapons. We had people come in with grand bags of Coke. We had people come in with brass knuckles, knives. We had people come in with sex toys in their purse. I'm like, we told you we're going through your purse. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm not surprised. I know. I'm thinking to myself, like you see the metal detector. Right. You know what I mean? Like, do you think you're going to get away with that? Like there are police officers on either side of it. Yeah. And then do you think you're actually going to keep the weapon? Many of them, I should say, many of them are not very rational thinkers or they wouldn't be there to begin with. So. And another time I was in Indiana, you know, there were people shackled for the hearing. And then there was like this big storm where they said nobody could leave the building. And I'm like going through the files. I have a good relationship with the judge. I'm like on the floor going through all the cases and they lock us in with a murderer. I'm like, I'm not so sure (laughs) being a stringer is worth this right now. (laughs) Well, at least least he was shackled. So there's that. I Um, mean, I had so many funny experiences going to the courthouse from becoming friends with the clerks to being locked in with a murderer to, you know, pepper spraying somebody to in front of me to, you know, you really to be good at any job, kind of like what you're saying, you have to get crafty. You know, I even got like special court clearance to go to some of these locations, you know, and and the records are open to the public. Like, truthfully, that's just a loophole that they're making you jump through. Yeah. And that's something I actually didn't know until I worked on the show is that if you file a case, anybody has access to that. Yeah. Or you don't even have to file a case. If somebody files a case against you, you may not even be interested in filing a case. You you may just be the victim of a lawsuit filed against you. Victim, defendant, your name is out there and it's in the public record. But same while you're, if you're arrested, you know, if you get arrested for something, I think it's probably the same in most states. I know it's like this in Florida and in in other states, but I can't say every state because we have 50. But if you get arrested, your name goes into the system. Now, if later on the case gets dropped, they'll, in some cases, they'll allow you to expunge that. But if the case doesn't get dropped, if basically they offer you some deal where like, hey, if you just go through this program, we will drop the case, then you, your name typically stays out there. It stays in there as an arrest. But in many places, it says you've been arrested, but then there's no disposition. And you know, somebody looks it up, your name's there, but they can't really find out what happened to the case because it just got dropped or resolved as a plea. So there, there are a lot of nuances based on state law. So you know, people have to go to their own state and say, okay, I got falsely accused. I got arrested. The case was dropped. How do I get my name out of the system? And I suspect in some states, you can't. Once you're there, you're there. Especially states that like haven't changed with the times and like made everything electronic. I mean, when I was doing this back in, you know, 2005, 2006, like the best cases were the ones that people were filling out by hand that hadn't yet gotten put into the system that you had all of their information. I literally knew where to stand where people were filling them out. I was like, Hey, you don't mind if I just scan this really quick before they put it in the system, right? Like you're getting ready to type it in anyway. You know, you don't get the same information online that you do if you're in person. Yeah, because they have they have certain blanks to fill and everything doesn't fit in a blank. So you f- you figured out how to how to capitalize on that. It was so much fun, though. It honestly became like a game for me, you know, like beating the other shows that were there, getting the cases before they were in the system, yeah. getting in with the guards, all of that. I am curious, too, like, did you ever have to get out on stage and you had just complete craziness happening with your family and you have to go out there and you have to be entertaining and you've got to be on your Absolutely. game and it is happening behind the Absolutely. scenes? Absolutely. Absolutely. I went through a very difficult couple of years. My wife had bad health issues develop. The reason we were in Houston for the first four years was I didn't want to be in LA for when my kids were 12 or whatever, 12 and 14, you know, during the stupid years. So I didn't, I didn't want to be all the way on the other side of the country. And so we agreed to tape in Houston. And then once the first five years passed, you know, my kids were now 19 and 17 and they were actually a lot more human. And so they asked me if I would agree to move it to LA. I, I I didn't want to move it. I told them it was a bad move. I said, I could do it. I could definitely do it now because my kids are older, but I fought for them to keep the show in Houston. They said, now we want to move it to LA. And so they did. Why didn't you want to move it? And because the show became a lot more expensive in LA, mm. you know, Houston was a non-union state. So they did the show 
much cheaper in, in Houston. I had a makeup artist who did my wardrobe as well, did my hair as well. So not that there's a lot to do with my hair. You know, it's not like women who have a lot more work that they need. You had to, to get the LA haircut. If they want to maintain a, the hairstyle they want, but with guys who basically get up in the morning and go like this and go, okay, I'm good. But on television, you know, they're like, oh, you have a hair out of place and stuff like this. It's, it's annoying. But when I got to LA, I had a makeup artist. I had a hair person. I had a wardrobe person. We were using a set in Houston that belonged to the, lo the local TV station. They liked having us there. And I would go on and do some legal commentary for them when I was there or whatever. And they let us use their set. Didn't even cost us anything. It was great. When we moved to LA, now we had to pay very much, <laughs> pay a lot for a set in LA. And then you have, you you know, the, the union rules, you know, I'm all for unions helping people, but some of the rules are just stupid. You know, we had a guy in LA, I, you know, I would sit behind the set and there's a door that I walk in and out of, and I would sit behind there looking at the case I was about to go in and handle because they're real cases. I'm reading the complaint. I'm reading the answer. I'm looking to, you know, what kind of questions might I want to ask? And they're walking in the litigants and filming their walk-in. So every once in a while, like they'll walk in the plaintiff and then they'll cut and then somebody from the set would walk through the door that I walk out and the audience would be looking through the door at me. <laughs> Every time that door opened, they'd be looking at me. And I thought, oh, that is a little awkward. So I got up and I was going to move the podium, little little podium and a little like director's chair. I was just going to move it over two feet so it wouldn't be in the line of sight of the audience every time they open the door. Oh, judge, you can't do that. What do you mean? No, we have to call the prop guy and he has to come back here and he has to move it. I'm like, I'm moving it two feet. I'm literally getting up and moving my chair two feet. I mean, do I have to call the prop guy if I want to get out of my chair so he can slide it back? No, but yeah, you have, you have to call the prop guy or we could get a grievance. I go, you're kidding. So they got on the PA and it's like, Brad, come backstage. And I had to wait there five minutes for Brad to work his way from where he was backstage for him to go, kunk. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is where unions become absurd. Those kinds of rules are stupid. You know, I remember being on the bench at one point and I guess somebody had had bananas for lunch or something. And there was those little gnats, those little fruit flies that you get when there are bananas around. And I'm in the middle of talking to a litigant. I went, and I, <laughs> I killed one. And then I went, did I just violate some union rule here by killing this gnat that was in my face? Because I probably- Protect the animals. <laughs> I, I probably violated, there was probably, a Brad was probably also the gnat killer or something. Yeah, going from Houston to LA just made the show more expensive. And also, you know, I knew all the people in Houston. I liked them. I've been working with them for four years. We all liked each other. And the show was like firing on all cylinders. Why pull it out of there and move it somewhere else and make it more expensive and, you know, leave all the people in Houston without a job and stuff? You know, I fought against it, but, you know, I couldn't use my kids as an excuse anymore because that was the that was the deal when I first started that they would do that for the first five years and then reevaluate. So that's how we moved. Wow. Yeah. A lot of New York shows went straight north into Connecticut. People's Court did that. They were filming in New York. They moved over to Connecticut. A lot of shows left LA and went to Atlanta because Atlanta was given all these tax credits for filming there. And then when those ended, a lot of shows went to Louisiana because Louisiana was given a lot of tax credits. So California and New York have lost a lot of business over the years because they're so prohibitively, ex prohibitively expensive to film there, you know, to tape there. What else have you learned about the entertainment industry over the years that people don't know? Let me just start by saying I've worked with, had the pleasure of working with really, really good quality, nice people. But Hollywood in general, I think the murderers that I sentenced were more trustworthy than a lot of the Hollywood people. Because Hollywood people will, I've told this story before, I, I had a, a guy I sentenced to prison and I forgot what it was for, but it was something serious. It was career criminal or something. I gave him something like 26 years or something like that in prison. And as he's walking out, he's very matter of fact, looked at me and said, judge, if I ever find you in an alley, I'm going to I'm going to kill you. And I, I said, okay, I guess I will stay out of alleys then. See you in 26 years, you know, <laughs> very upfront. They'll tell you exactly what they're going to do. In Hollywood, they smile at you. And, and meanwhile, they drive a knife in your back or they try to undermine your position or they try to get your job, but they're always trying to be, you know, look like they're your friends. It's very two-faced, I guess. But you know, like I had the pleasure of working with a lot of great people. 
lot of wonderful people on our show. But the entertainment industry, I think people think that that the selection, the decision to launch a show or cancel a show is made with a lot of analysis and stuff. And in very many cases, it's a gut feeling of somebody that somebody doesn't want to say no to, you know, somebody thinks it's a good show and you get a lot of probably not gender correct, but yes men in Hollywood that keep their position by always agreeing with the boss. And so you get some show ideas that are absolutely horrible. You know, I remember hearing some of them and going like, that makes no sense. Why would anybody think that show is going to work? And of course it didn't work. It failed and cratered, but how could nobody, you know, especially me having not been in television my whole life and I could see it was going to fail. How could people who do this for a living go, I think this is going to work. A lot of those decisions are made, you know, I don't want to say on a whim, but you know, it sure seems like that. I hear shows that are canceled because some executive's spouse says, I don't get this show. And the executive goes, calls and cancels the show. And a hundred people are out of work because his wife didn't get that show. Yeah, I think there's things like that that the public doesn't know. Wow, that's really interesting. You almost played a judge in a movie, but you had a speaking engagement somewhere else? Yeah, the movie was Pain and Gain. It was a, a Michael Bay movie. He directed it. And it was with Mark Wahlberg and The Rock, Anthony Mackie. Tony Shalhoub, who plays Monk, you know, everybody knows him as Monk. Ed Harris, you know, just fantastic cast. And it was a movie based on a trial that I did. I tried the real case from beginning to end. When I was trying it, I knew someday this is going to be a movie or at least a book because it was just a fascinating, crazy story. And if you watch the movie, you realize how crazy it is. And of course, the movie took a little bit of literary license with the facts, but for the most part, the facts are pretty on track. And the book is called Pain and Gain. And I think there's two of them out there, but the one I'm talking about, Pain and Gain, was written by uh, Pete Collins. Uh, He was a journalist who kind of followed the whole case. And in fact, the book goes over things I didn't even know because... There were things that happened outside the courtroom and outside the what was relayed in court that that he investigated. So it's a pretty fascinating story. By the time Michael Bay's group bought the rights to do the movie, I was already doing Judge Alex. And at the time I was at William Morris, the agency, the talent agency, and so was Michael Bay. So my agent reached out to his agent and said, hey, we represent the actual judge who tried this case. What do you think about having him play himself in the movie? Which I thought would be really cool. You know, I thought it was it would be like that scene in Pursuit of Happiness where Will Smith plays the guy who rose from nothing to to become a very successful, I think it was stockbroker. At the end of the movie, there's a scene where Will Smith is is walking down the street and this other guy's walking the other way and they pass each other and they kind of look at each other. And the other guy is the real character. And I thought that'd be really cool to have me on the bench playing myself in this movie. So they said, we're not casting yet, but when we are, we'll definitely bring it to his attention. So time goes by and eventually they start filming in Miami. And I'm, I know a lot of cops here, of course, and they're coming up to me. They see me at happy hour or something. They go, Hey, I was on set with Michael Bay. I'm pain and gain. They're filming here. And, and he said that you're going to be in the movie. And I said, news to me, nobody has reached out to me. And I just assumed, you know, he was just saying that because it, obviously his casting agent could call me anytime. So, you know, time went by and time went by and I kept hearing that from cops. And I was like, I don't think that's true. I would have heard by now. And then I get invited to give a graduation speech at a college and I'm boarding a flight to fly to Boston to give this graduation speech. And my phone rings and it's, I forgot what casting agency. And they said, Michael Bay would like you to play the judge on pain and gain. I said, fantastic. I am so looking forward to this. They go, great. We film tomorrow. I went, what? Uh, Why 24 hours notice? And they said, we screwed up. We were supposed to call you months ago. And we thought we had is only now that we were doing the schedule for tomorrow that we realized we never called you. And I said, well, I'm boarding a flight to go give a graduation speech tomorrow. I said, I can catch a flight back after the speech. You know, any chance you're filming in the afternoon? They said, no, we got to be out of the courthouse by one o'clock. So I missed my opportunity. I wasn't going to cancel on the students, you know, their, their graduation. So I couldn't do it. I went to the premiere of the movie, which was really cool to be there. You know, uh, it was very, it was, it was nice to be there at the premiere and meet all the, the stars in the movie and stuff, except for The Rock, who apparently had injured himself wrestling. So he wasn't there. But I went to the after party after the movie. I went there with my kids and we met Michael Bay and his PR person. And we met uh, all these actors in the movie. And, you know, I told, his PR person said Michael was very disappointed 
disappointed you couldn't play yourself. And I said, well, you know, I, I assure you he wasn't as disappointed as I was, but I got to meet Mark Wahlberg and, and Tony Shalhoub and Ed Harris and Anthony Mackey and, and all of them. And, and I, it, was, it was nice. My kids were excited to meet them, but, but what they were most excited about was how excited they were to meet the judge who tried the real case. Cause they just did this movie on this ridiculous case. And, you know, they got to meet the judge who tried the real one. Of course, the movie made the characters seem likable because you kind of have to in, in, in that kind of a movie. They weren't likable at all. They were vicious and evil people. And the movie made the victims seem very trashy and, and they weren't. They, you know, that I didn't really like that too much about the movie that they really made the victims look really bad when they weren't like they were portrayed. But, uh, you know, I do understand it's Hollywood. I mean, a lot of people complained that the movie was kind of a comedy, but the case itself had a very dark humor. I mean, lawyers, you know, like I said, police officers get hardened. Lawyers get hardened too when you're dealing with trying murder cases every week and things like that. And so, you know, you have this this sense of humor that the public probably wouldn't share because you have to kind of joke about these things or else you really, it really take it home with you. And there were times during the case when, you know, the lawyers would all come sidebar and we would just like shake our head and laugh about some ridiculous aspect of the case, even though it was a horrible case. There was this constant thread of humor, really dark humor throughout this case. And I can see why Hollywood took it and said, yeah, this is this is kind of a Pulp Fiction-y type of film where there's a, a thread of humor running through this dark movie. But yeah, that was my lost Hollywood opportunity. Well, you've had lots of Hollywood opportunities. In fact, you even got another show, The Whistleblower. Yeah, Whistleblowers. It's an amazing show. And the fact that that show is not on television right now is such a travesty. We, we're trying to get it back, but I just don't know if it's going to come back or not. Ideally, some streaming service like Netflix would buy it from CBS because we sold it. My partner, Ted Eccles, and I created that show and we took it to CBS. We got to work with Susan Zarinsky, who's a legend, and, and all the producers there were amazing. And we, we created a really good show. It's airing on Paramount Plus right now, but we should be producing new episodes. We have like a lot of fantastic whistleblower stories to tell, but you know, it's sitting on a shelf somewhere at CBS. So hopefully, hopefully it'll get, it'll get back into development. We, we would love to do that. Keep, yeah. keep that show. I love that concept. I mean, yeah, there are 14 episodes. They're all good. They're all good in a different way. They're different areas. But if somebody just says to you this, what these whistleblowers go through is just incredible. You can't really grasp it, you know, because you have nothing to relate to. But just watch one episode. I mean, the stories are just so riveting. There's uh, the one about Northrop. There's the one about this dental clinic for kids. There's the one about fake surgeries in California, spinal surgeries. There's uh, oh my God. One of, the one about a doctor who diagnoses patients as having cancer when they didn't, so he could put them on chemo and bill Medicare for it. People died. These stories are just so incredible. Uh, we've had whistleblowers who had attempts on their lives here in the US, you know, not like in some third world country where you go like, well, you know, you kind of expect that there, you know, it's crazy. The stories are crazy. We had one on police corruption, Chicago PD. There, there's just all kinds of whistleblower stories and what happens to them, the attempts on their lives sometimes, the destruction of their career, going after their families. I mean, everything that you would think would never happen in this country. So the stories are just amazing stories. So that's why I hope they come back into production because we have so many more good ones waiting in the wings. Wow, that's fantastic. And as far as your future, like, do you want to create other shows? Do you want to be a part of the movie industry? What is next for you? What's the dream now? I'm always working on other show ideas. I'm working on another show idea now, even while I'm hoping Whistleblower comes back. I've We've got other irons in the fire. Sure, I would. I would definitely take a stab at acting. I don't plan my life, and I tell people this all the time. I'm not. Mm. I'm not somebody who says this is what I'm going to do, and in the next number of years, I'm going to. I'm going to be here and that. And that's the benefit of having gotten a good educational base. I I speak to students all the time, and I talk to them about like my secret of success, which I think is is applicable to everybody. And that and it starts with having getting a good solid educational base that you can use for many things. If I'd stayed as a police officer, I'm sure I would have been happy as a police officer. I probably would be griping like most cops are as they get towards retirement because of all the stuff you deal with. But you know, it was gratifying for me. 
but I wouldn't have been able to do all these things I've done. But having that educational base, you know, my law degree or, you know, a college degree, it opens more doors for you so that you're not pigeonholed doing this the rest of your life. You have, you have options, as my dad said. So, so I do something until I want to do something else. Because of the educational base, I, ha- I have that choice. You know, I never would have become a judge if I didn't have a law degree. I never would have had a court TV show. I assure you, nobody grows up going, oh, one day I'm going to be a TV judge. And so let me go to law school. You know, nobody thinks like that. At least I certainly didn't. You just never know what opportunities are going to come up down the road. And that's why I think having have, getting as much education as you can early on just gives you so many more choices you know, as, as life goes on. Yeah. My dad wants to know how to get a Netflix show. Your dad wants to know how to get a Netflix show. I tell him that when he finds out to let me know, I would love to have whistleblower on Netflix. I would love to, I think it's perfect for them. You know, it's a show that it appeals to every demographic. I mean, whether you're a baby boomer or you're a millennial, nobody likes people ripping all of us off. You know, nobody likes that. Nobody likes unbridled greed which is what this all stems from. And so it's a show that cuts across whether you're rich or poor, whether you're young or old or, or whatever. And you know, I, think, I think it would be a great home on Netflix. So if your dad figures it out, have him give me a ring. Is there anything else you'd like to ask him? Tell me about some of the difficulties you had with Rena during her teenage years. Because I know that girls become a nightmare, I know from experience, during the teenage years. Boys just do stupid stuff. Girls become a totally different creature. And then eventually they come back home and they become normal again, human. So yeah, I'd be curious to find out how difficult you were as a teen. (laughs) He has some stories there for sure. I'll bet. This has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Judge Alex, thank you. Can I just get you to do like a little intro? Because oh. I feel like you would even do it better than me. I don't know about that, but what do you want me to do? I don't know. Maybe just say this is Judge Alex on the Better Call Daddy show. Or if you remember like any of your intro from the court TV show. We didn't really have an intro on the court TV show. They just, my bailiff said, all rise. And I walked out there and sat down and that was it. I mean, you know, we had a voiceover, but the voiceover guy was always like on today's Judge Alex. You know, I guess we could do that. On today's Better Call Daddy, you'll hear from Judge Alex on what it's like to be a TV judge and what it's like to produce a show called Whistleblower. How's that? I love it. Great talking to you, Rena. You too. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Just like the theme of our show, a big influence on Judge Alex is his father and his parents. Here, he's just a young man, still has braces on, becomes a police officer, thinks that's what he's going to do for the rest of his life. And his parents, especially his father, is saying, hey, it's a good job, good beginning, but keep your options open. Keep educating yourself. So he's a policeman at night and going to school during the day. He finishes his college, he goes to law school, and he's studying criminal behavior and learning all the different variances of what judicial wisdom that he has. So this way, he's able to see it from many points of view. And the more points of view that you are able to see things, that's what makes you a better judge of character, because you've experienced all sides of it. And you then experience, as he says in the show, he says that, my gosh, we don't want to let these guys get away. But yet we don't want anybody that's innocent as well to be punished and have their lives ruined if we make a mistake. Only in America do you have really that great opportunity, even though it can be a delay, even though it sounds terrible, and even though we think that there's terrible injustices in our system, it could be a hell of a lot worse if you go to Venezuela or if you go to Mexico or you go to the Soviet Union or you go to China, or you go to Turkey. So when you start adding all these countries, I don't mean just to point out those countries, I could probably make a list of 50 or 60 or 70 more. Thank God we live in America. I did like also that these shows that people are going on, it really gives the judge of that show a little bit more of a presence where they have to really make a solid decision because it's not only they're doing it in TV in front of millions of people, but it's the final word because if they say something or they do something wrong, that's going to end their show. That's going to end their credibility. And the people that are really entrusting the judge to make the right decisions because it's the final word. And I love that. Rena, what else you got going on? Yeah, he wanted to know uh, a juicy teenager story. Everybody wants to know what I did to get in trouble as a kid. Well, we certainly know of one incident 
Thank God that that's been espunged from the record. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and I think I had to get up in the middle of the night to come down to the jailhouse to fetch you. <laughs> that's all of that story. Yeah. Thank goodness. I've learned my lesson since then. Although right. I do think I should have gotten a lawyer. <laughs> but you know what else? Then you decide instead of you driving, you let your girlfriend drive and she drove it into a building at college. I don't, I'm so sure you learned your lesson too well. It just got elevated in your next adventure of knowledge from high school to college. But it's all well and good because you want to build and learn from your experiences. And the more perspectives that you get and the more experiences you have, hopefully we don't kill ourselves. We are able to hopefully continue as we get older to gain wisdom points where we can actually live better lives ourselves and be able to help others also lead better lives. As this show demonstrates over and over again, we want to set the right examples for future generations as well. And the guests on our show, or I should say Rena's show, when they come on here, they get a chance to not only give their story and have a platform to express a candid view and hopefully where we can add to it and where this can be timeless. Just as Judge Alex said, is that we want to be able to build our wisdom and be able to make a difference in people's lives and hopefully for the better. One final question. What did you think about his take on Hollywood? Well, it's certainly a vicious game at times and everybody looking to steal each other's, it's I guess, cutthroat. And a lot of businesses, unfortunately, are cutthroat. And I would rather be, as Rena would rather be, in a business where it's not cutthroat, where we have to knock someone else down for us to get ahead. We would hope that we can get ahead and the people that work with us also get ahead. And I think that's a much better philosophy that would be uh, business practices should be more like that than let's step on this one or let's steal from that one. And that's the way to get ahead. I think that's the wrong message that we should have in society. What do you think about the fact that Judge Alex said he'd like to work with me again? I think that's great. And, uh, you know, I wanted him to get us on Netflix, but maybe we'll do a collaboration and maybe do it together. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 